stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Helsinki, Finland, Osaka, Japan, and Port Orchard, Washington State. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you're painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I am your host, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida, and this is a bonus episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast. Later, I will be joined by Alan Curtis, the author of From Atacama to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883, found in the Muskets to Maxim series from Hellion and Company Publishers. We'll be talking about Chile, Bolivia, and Peru as we go to South America on the podcast. But first, let me bring you up to date on what's happening out in the world. Hang on a minute, lads. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. It's time to update your event calendar. If you have anything you'd like to uh, communicate or have communicated, shoot me an email with all of the details to shotandshield at gmail.com. Once again, shotandshield at gmail.com. Here's a few things that are on the calendar at this moment. In Jacksonville, Florida, Skirmish Game Con at the Holiday Inn Bay Meadows on March 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Tickets tickets for the full weekend are only $40 for three full days. The website is skirmishgamecon.com. That's skirmishgamecon.com. Lots of board games, a D&D, and historical miniature games for sure. Testify, I'll be hosting one of my Russian colonial games on Saturday, and I know that friend of the podcast, Edgar and Damien, are running their Blood and Steel games as well. Plus, so much going on, you want to be there. Remember, it's March 3rd, 4th, 5th in Jacksonville, Florida, and you can find more info, including tickets, at skirmishgamecon.com. Now, if you're living in London, there is a Victorian Military Society seminar on the Anglo-Sikh Wars at the National Army Museum on Saturday, April 29th from 11 to 4, your time. The very distinguished panel of speakers includes friend of the podcast, Gurinder Singh Man, and Dr. Chris Bryce. They'll be joined by Neil Carlton and Amarpal Singh Sidhu. Tickets are £15 for VMS members and £17.50 for non-members. For more information, hit the website victorianmilitary.org. That's victorianmilitary.org. Now, once again, if you like your event communicated, shoot me an email with all the details at shotandshield at gmail.com. That's shotandshield at gmail.com. In a moment, Alan Curtis will be joining me to talk about late 19th century South America. That's next in this bonus episode of Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. Hey, what the blaze is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. 
This is Shot and Shield. In this bonus episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast, I am joined by Alan Curtis, the author of From Atacama to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883. It tells the brutal struggle between Bolivia and Chile to control the wealth of the Atacama Desert and for retention of Bolivia's coast. The result, well, Chile gains control of mineral resources and Bolivia becomes the second landlocked country on the South American continent. Our author in this bonus episode, Alan Curtis, has spent over 40 years studying the war in the Pacific and while working in international banking and then education and a fellow longtime war gamer. Yes. So I'm especially excited. This is excellent. Alan, thank you for joining me on Shot and Shield. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have to I have to confess, uh, being an amateur history buff, I am being enamored with the 19th century uh, history, as uh, the listeners all know. I miss this. So I am your pupil. Teach me. Let's uh, let's start with a, a short synopsis. The, uh, you know, what was the conflict about? The who, the what, the why, the where, the how? Who was involved? How'd this start? Well, it all started because a very stupid Bolivian dictator called Hilarion Daza decided to put attacks on the nitrates which were being mined in the Atacama Desert. Unfortunately, at the time, the Atacama was a little bit of a undesignated area. The Bolivians generally claimed it. The Chileans sort of decided they really wanted it because it had all this nitrate in it. And so eventually an agreement was made for the, for the Bolivians not to tax the stuff that the Chileans were digging out. He then decided he needed a bit of cash. So he then put a tax on it. The Bolivians were somewhat angry and promptly invaded and took over the, the province which was on the coast of Bolivia. Otherwise, Bolivia was completely landlocked. That then dragged the Peruvians in who started to panic because they thought the Chileans were then going to take their nitrate for, uh, produce. And it just did, disintegrated into a general war, which the Chileans had the massive advantage because they had the better navy. So they could control the coast. There was virtually no transport inland, very few railways, no roads. So the Chileans could land where they wanted, when they wanted, they ended up because the the other two side of the side would not negotiate once even though they kept losing battles they um, eventually even captured lima and all that happened was the Peruvians just went into the mountains and operated as a guerrilla war and that went on between 1879 up to 1883 before the Peruvians finally gave up the Bolivians had given up by then anyway they weren't interested all their mining interests were only interested in the silver mines in up in the Altiplano of Bolivia. In the desert here, the there was silver and nitrate. Now, nitrate is used for weapons, uh, weaponry, yes. right? At the time, it was used for gunpowder mainly, but also for fertilizers. Um, yeah. At this okay. point, you, they had to use natural nitrates because the Germans were on the cusp of developing artificial nitrates, but hadn't quite at that point. So they, um, it was a bit like occupying the Persian Gulf, as far as a lot of people were concerned. It was, okay. This place was full of nitrates. I would like to point out at this point, 
It's the war is quite often referred to as the Guano War, and I've had people describe it as a fight over guano bird droppings. Um, it wasn't. The guano had all been dug up by this point. That was easy. The man with a shovel could dig that up. Right, right. The nitrates was. It was a major industrial process. If you ever, it, I have seen pictures of them, even at the time, and they were like factories with massive open cast mines attached. They they were quite capital intensive, which is why the uh, the Bolivians really left the development to the Chileans because they didn't have the capital. All their money was invested in Bolivian the Bolivian silver mines, and they didn't really care about coast. It was difficult to reach. There was no communication as such between the coast. So was that, um, you know, it's it's funny when you think about cultures and how they develop and everything. The fact that, you know, the the Portuguese and the Spanish had conquered these lands back in the, you know, 14, you know, 1300s. And uh, those empires, finally, when they crumbled, when they receded, left a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of these areas not supervised. Yeah. When you see the growth of a culture and how they come out of uh, that empire, especially a Spanish one, well, the Spanish they they value gold, they valued silver, and so when Bolivia is, uh, you know, if they value silver, would you think that was because of a cultural reason, because that's what they're used to, or is because that's where they're getting their money from? Well, I think it, it's both. The the whole culture is about acquisition of gold was was about acquisition of gold and silver mm-hmm. precious metals. And they really didn't care too much. The landed gentry didn't care too much about the peasants who were running the land. Right. All they were concerned about was getting their gold out, using the forced labour, etc., to do it. And that really was their only concern. The, the, the country was, it was described by one of its previous presidents, one of the liberators going back to the 1830s, as like trying to build a house with foundations on sand. The place was just corrupt. Right. Full of self-interest, but from these leading families. And so they didn't really interested in developing anything. But the Chileans, on the other hand, had more of a sort of like a culture which wasn't based, although there's a lot of, I mean, obviously the Chilean is based on, the economy is based on mines now to a considerable right. extent. But also, also farming. Even, even, to, even to today, yeah. uh, copper mines and the silver mines. And- right. Um, but the... The Chileans sort of developed in a different way. They were more open to commerce. The tribal situation in Chile was totally different to what it was in Peru, in uh, Bolivia, where the, the tribal foundations broke up very quickly. And the Indians, and I think I'm allowed to call them Indians because the, the South Americans still call them Indians. They don't call them like Native Americans or anything right. like that. It's, it's not seen as so much of a derogatory term. So I apologise if anybody finds it offensive that I do that. But um, they, they are continually referred to as Indians in South American writing. They lost their tribal identities to a considerable extent. And except for the Mepeche, um, who were down in the sort of South Central, who, um, no, man, that's a different, that's an interesting story. It's when I did think about wargaming that at one point, because these, these Indians were really, really difficult for the Chileans and the Spanish to defeat. And they killed quite a few conquistadors mm-hmm. in the process. For the most part, they just the Indians just ended up on uh, large farms, large ranches, or in the cities like uh, Valparaiso and Santiago. They sort of like developed an urban underclass, which you didn't get in Bolivia. So it actually tended to make them better soldiers as well. Um, without the, and, and so the Chilean economy was much more efficient 
the governmental system was by no means perfect. I mean, it was it was corrupt, of course, they all were. But right. it um, it wasn't dominated by the military like the others were. So you had this separation between the military and the political, which you didn't have in Chile, where in uh, Bolivia and Peru, where there was just a continual string of military dictators. They hadn't actually had a military coup since about 1830. The government was solid. It meant that particularly the British were willing to invest there um, and develop the economy, which in turn meant funded the war effort, which the Peruvians and the Bolivians couldn't do as well. There's a little bit to unpack there because I, when you when you when you would when you mention the British, I just I just think if the British are willing to jump into South America to invest, I wonder how that would have played against the Monroe Doctrine that uh, the United States had about non-interference. Well, they, they weren't interfering. It was purely done, although they usually get blamed for starting the war, I will, I will admit, but I think maybe, maybe the British governments of the time far too much credit. It, it was done as a, as entrepreneurs investing money either in Chile I see. Or, and also expertise. There was a lot of British expertise that went into the nitrate mining. So it was it was people just going there and investing money. The, ship com- the shipping company there, the main shipping company of Chile, was actually British. Uh, and of course, the, the British, particularly the Scots, have a lot of engineering skill and experience, and that was used by the Chileans. So there was there was no political interference from the British. So that brings up another interesting point. You know, talk about the the war in general. I mean, you're you're talking about this is fought in mountains. It's fought in the desert. It's fought in the uh, in the Pacific. The main battles really are in the Pacific, right? Well, there's two na- significant naval engagements in the, um, off the coast. Um, most of the main bat- land battles are fought, and certainly the most numerous land battles are fought progressively going up the coast from the Chilean, ex-Chilean coast all the way up. And they actually even raided into North Peru um, with amphibious expeditions into some of the northern Peruvian towns. So just a, as, a, as a note, Bolivia at this time did have a navy. They did have water. They didn't have a navy. They had three sail-powered sloops they used for custom vessels, which were taken over by the Chileans. And that was it. The Peruvians had a, what appeared to be a decent navy at the time, which turned out not to be. Because I read that uh, it was this was one of the first uh, times that you had ironclads on ironclads. It was actually the only time that ironclads fought each other between the Battle of Lissa in 1866, between the Austrians and the Italians, and going right the way up to the Sino-Japanese War of 1896, the Battle of the Yalu. So the Chileans had um, these ironclads. Mm-hmm. So the Peruvians had the ironclads? I had two ironclads and two old Canonicus class monitors, veterans of the, of the American Civil War. Which so, were, Bolivia, so Bolivia in this, basically, because they had a couple of dinghies pretty much out of the naval part of it. They were it, was just, it was just Peru then. So how, how, did, how did Peru get involved in this now? Well, both of them had had a history with the Chileans going back um, to 1836 to 39, when there was a war between the Chileans and the Bolivians and Peruvians who had formed, united the two countries. The Chileans saw as a threat. So they actually had a war and won eventually, although it was a bit of a hard fought contest, but they eventually won, broke up the the confederation between the two. But there was always this lingering fear of the Chileans of those two getting together 
but obviously they were they were interested resources. And so the Proovians also had nitrates, but not like the Bolivians did. And they were frightened that their that the ne- they were the next step for the Chileans. The Chileans wouldn't stop Bolivia, they would then move on to Peru. So the Peruvians and the um Bolivians formed what they thought was a secret treaty that if one was attacked, the other would join in. Uh, unfortunately, the Chileans knew about it straight away. <laughs> So it was no secret. That, that always never ends well when somebody finds out about the secret treaty. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't. Um, so when the Peruvians attempted to mediate, the um, the Chileans just took that as, you don't mean this, you're just sort of lying to us. And so it just sort of escalated into a fight from that. That's funny that you, that you say that because it, in my limited reading before we started our conversation today, it just ha- in the in the basic overview, it almost seemed impression was that uh, that Chile was the aggressor in this that and Bolivia was just looking for a port. But now, after just what you've said, it seems more like Bolivia and and Peru were just just trying to take the whole thing, and and Chile was just watching out for their interests. Generally, it was regarded that the Atacama was was more Bolivian than Peruvian. And although they'd had various agreements, it was generally accepted that most of it was Bolivian. But I think the Chileans took the act. Well, this is a time when wars were fought, well, they still are now, aren't they? Just over occupying somebody else's territory for the sake of it. Right. Or what resources. I mean, we've got one on the go at the moment, haven't we? They looked at that and thought, this could be ours. We want it. It's just the same as all the other if you like, all the other imperialistic invasions that were going on of different places. You know, mm-hmm. um, the only unique thing about this was it didn't actually involve any Europeans or any North Americans. They, it was it was purely a local war. That That's what uh, I found interesting uh, about just the, the idea is that normally in the 19th century, you have some European getting involved in somebody else's business. In this case, you don't. In the American Civil War, you don't. Um, there's very few. There's very few conflicts where there's not some European, you know, putting their nose in where it doesn't belong, type of deal. So, and this this is one of those. I want to move on to something else. Here is, you know, this is also fought with breech loading weapons, mm. machine guns. We got the ironclads. So the Chileans created their own breech loading weapons. Who who was the weapons dealer in this? Um, USA supplied a lot of weaponry to the Peruvians. Okay. Mainly rifles, but I'd say a lot of um, some of the older ships were supplied by them. Chilean uh, battleships were supplied by the British, and they were actually quite good ships. They were very small, but they were up to date. They were quite mm-hmm. new. Um, and although they were sort of like miniature, they were very effective ships. Whereas the Peruvian ships, and they had two old American monitors, they had one armoured frigate, which was similar to the to the Gloire, you know, the, the original French uh, armoured ship, uh, which was just basically the same design as a wooden ship, but it had iron sides slapped onto it, uh, just a broadside frigate sort of thing. And they had very interesting, and it's actually in South America, it's a very famous ship, it's called the Huascar, which was a monitor. But this was a seagull monitor, it's quite a unique ship, um, because I don't know if you know the I presume, you know, the problem that monitors had was they had this irritating habit of tipping over or getting swamped in high seas. So what the, uh, so what, it, it was invented by a man called Caper Coles, a British captain, who unfortunately invented one iron, uh, one monitor, which he didn't quite sort out, and it actually sank with him on board uh, in a storm. 
It was, it was quite a notorious case in Victorian Britain. But this one was, was based on the same lines. But they had a cunning plan of having, although the, the pipe was low in the water, they put decking around the side, which they could drop to fire the guns. When it wasn't fighting, it was reasonably, well, it was seaworthy. It was a very seaworthy ship. Uh, as soon as the fighting started, they had to drop the, um, the sides. And it could, but it could only fire sideways. Because it had to have it had a forecastle at the front, which stopped firing going forwards, and obviously right. it had all the funnels and bridge and such like it behind it. So it had a very limit. It had a limited range of fire. So the uh, the ironclads um, that Peruvians and the uh, Chileans uh, used basically just war surplus from uh, no, America. No. They were all bought specifically for the task. The two Peruvian ironclads were bought because in 1866. It's somewhat bizarrely, the Ecuadorians, the Bolivians, the Peruvians and the Chileans were at war with the Spanish. <laughs> it's, it's quite bizarre that a Spanish right. squadron turned up and then just decided to have a fight with, the, with all four countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bought, because the um, Spanish turned up with a couple of ironclads, the Bolivian, uh, sorry, the Peruvians decided to buy some as well. So they were sort of like 1866 vintage. The Chileans then later decided they were going to buy some ironclads and they went to the British and they bought two at the time sort of top of the range jobs. But they were small, but top of the range jobs. They were casemate ironclads. So they were um, they could fire guns in all directions, but didn't have to didn't have to tow it. An armoured central casemate, which protected the boilers and the engines. And it also had six guns, three on either side, two of which could point forwards, two could point back. And then they could fire. And they actually caused an embarrassment to the US government for quite some time, because after that, people were measuring um, the strength of the Navy and the the number of ironclads it had. So although the Chileans had virtually no Navy other than these two ironclads, because the US Navy had no ironclads at this point until they built the new Navy, everybody kept looking and saying, oh, the Americans aren't as good as the Chileans at Navy. And they, they were ranked below. Although I, I have a feeling that the American Navy would have just obviously just wiped the Navy. Right. If anything, just by sheer size. By like size, equipment. Yeah, they, they, they would have easily defeated them. But there was always this. And, and that was part of the reason why they eventually did the new Navy was because of the embarrassment of being outgunned by the, in theory, Chile. Right. And then, uh, then the other point was the machine guns. But yeah, they were mainly Gatling guns. Although there were a few other ones like Nordenfelt's and other ones like that, which were on sort of slightly different designs. But the the one that was used most was the Gatling. And what they tended to do, they actually put them on, on the ships. And some of the Chilean ships actually had Gatling guns on there um, up in the crow's nest. And they used to use them to clear um, the Peruvian decks. <laughs> wow. They, they, were actually, they were actually very good with their small arms because they actually used, they either used machine guns or they used rifle fire to clear, clear the decks of the like, Huascar, which was armoured. Um, but they wouldn't come on deck because they had this little old gunboat chugging along, which just cleared the decks with the rifle fire. It's quite impressive. Yeah, and yourself being a war gamer, you know, trying to think about gaming that particular segment mm. on the table to clear the decks of an of another boat with a Gatling gun from the crow's nest. I can't even think of what I would roll. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite I was quite impressed when I saw that when I first read that they could do that. I thought that is that is actually 
So I'm speaking with Alan Curtis about his book from Atacama to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883 from Hellion and Company Publishers. You can pick up this book at Hellion website or Amazon, Blackwells, or wherever you get uh, your excellent books like this. I'd like to move on to the land battles. In the study I did before you and I talked, there was it said there were just one large land battle, and that was in the desert. Is that correct? No, they, they were spread all along the coast, and there were then some inland. Once the uh, once Lima had fallen, there were several small battles because it was mainly guerrilla warfare. But there was one la- small but decisive and very wargameable battle at the end, um, which finally made the uh, Peruvian society to give up. But before that, there had been the biggest battle was actually fought outside Lima and involved something like thirty thousand Chileans and probably a similar number of Peruvians is actually fought in two stages. Two sort of defensive lines were forced. But yeah, I mean, that was probably about the second biggest battle ever fought in South America. Um, but before that, there'd been the Battle of Tacna involved like 13,000 Chileans and 10,000 allies. So they, they were fairly sizable battles by local standards. And there'd also been battles. At, but those, the Tacna battle wasn't actually in the Atacama. Um, the ones in the Atacama were fairly small scale compared to this. When you um, say small scale, you're you're talking a few hundred, uh, a couple of thousand, a couple of thousand up to a couple of thousand. Oh well, no, no. To be fair, there was um, this Battle of San Francisco was probably about eighteen thousand people involved in total. So yeah, they weren't sort of ever so small battles, but there were some that were, were quite tiny. And I say that the last battle of the war involved about 1,600 on either side. When did Bolivia stop being involved and it just became between Chile and Peru? Well, they never officially left. In fact, they were the last ones to actually sign a truce with Chileans. They effectively ended it with the Battle of Tacna, which was, well, that was 1880, when the Chileans defeated the combined army at Tacna and the Peruvians army basically disintegrated and the Bolivian, what the left of the Bolivian army just headed for the hills, literally headed for the hills back to the Altiplano Plano in Bolivia and safety. And they just sort of like had a remnant army which sort of hovered around but didn't really do, didn't actually do anything. And the, but the Peruvians fought on. But they had an ability, they, they did keep raising a lot of armies. The armies got destroyed, they raised another one. I'd imagine that the, you know, because they're raising these raising these armies very quickly, they're the they're these are armies that are just fodder now because they don't have enough time to really train. No, some of them did have a lot of time to train and didn't, if I think. Okay. Um the army of Arequipa which was down in the south, which was a little bit that the Chileans sort of bypassed. And they had an army there from the beginning to the end of the war. It was useless. It had virtually no training whatsoever. And that was over a period of four years. Four years and lack of training. You figured in four years, you'd become was, an expert. <laughs> yeah, no, they did. I, I think we we sort of like have to accept, understand the mentality, a lot of the officer corps, which was lazy and incompetent. There were some good commanders on, I, I don't know if there were any good commanders on the Bolivian side. If there were, they never showed. Chileans had a slight advantage in that because of their financial situation, the same before about the economy, they had the opportunity to send a lot of their officers off to um, European military colleges. So they got a little bit of um, that 
Oh, there's one very interesting character, a man called Patricio Lynch, who was a um, red-headed son of an Irishman. There's a, there's a lot of them actually featured, but you, you come across a lot, particularly Irish, but also um, Scottish and English names as well, um, and a few Germans. But this guy was actually sent off to, seconded to the Royal Navy, and he ended up fighting in the First Opium War for the Royal Navy. So they, they had that much more experience than the Peruvians tended to have. They also had the advantage of fighting the Indians down in the south that I mentioned before. So they had a little bit of sort of fighting experience, whereas the Peruvians and Bolivians, the only fighting experience they had was shooting at each other during coups. Quite literally, that's all they ever did. The last battle the, Peru the Peruvians and Bolivians had fought in was eight, as an army was in 1841, where they had a fight with each other and chopping the Bolivians won. I think it's the only battle they think, or the only war they ever won in South America. So what you're describing here is you have a Chilean army, fairly well-trained, has experienced officers. Some experienced officers. Some experienced officers. I use experiences, you know, the, nobody's going to be an elite or a veteran no. type officer outside of, you know, like you said, the uh, gentleman that said Lynch, um, Lynch. I, yeah. that uh, fought in the opium war. So he has those real, as real battle experience fighting in, in heavy duty combat to where the Peruvians and the Bolivians, now you're talking at best, you're looking at guerrilla type warfare mentality. No, they, they were very um, set on regular battles, regular armies. They just had no experience of it. And also, I'll, I'll quote you some interesting figures here. I think they are in my book. But, um, I'll quote them here as well. At the beginning of the war, Bolivian army numbered 2,175 men, of which 16 were generals, 29 were colonels and lieutenant colonels, 215 were majors, 100 were captains, and 216 were lieutenants. That doesn't leave many line troops and NCOs. No, it doesn't. Um, and you would think that, oh, well, at least they got sort of like a large officer corps. But the officers, because they had no experience, most of them were either sort of very old, retired or semi-retired, um, no experience. And the, and the culture was of not going to do anything. We're just going to sit around and not do anything. So the officer class for these countries here, these are from the landowners, from the the, the upper crust, as it would uh, yeah. as it would be. So this is upper class, the rich. Yeah. So are, they would all be white, and the soldiers on yeah. both sides would all be mainly Indian or a lot mixed race. See, the, because the Chileans broke up, or what well, it, it broke up, the the tribal um, system. There was a lot more mixed race Indians um, for the. Peruvians and the Bolivians, they were basically, they were either in the towns. So you would get some white people in the rank and file, but for right. the most part, they would be dragging in peasants, highlands or wherever to just sort of fill out the numbers, basically. With, they were just untrained peasants. For someone like me who is extremely no novice on this subject, if I had to compare the military tactics of, the, uh, say, the Peruvians to another country, just to kind of get an, a better understanding of of how the Peruvians or Bolivians or, or Chileans would be on the battlefield, you know, who who would I compare that to? In, in, let's say in European terms. Yeah, I was just trying to think of a European term, ar army that would be like that. I mean, it, it's difficult to compare because the, they could be quite fierce fighters and the Bolivians were absolutely incredible putting up with the complete lack of a commissariat. 
they would march, they marched across deserts with no water and all sorts of things like this. A lot of the marches ended up going, they're going back home. They would put up with so many privations um, because they had no um, logistic support. And they would, some of them, the Colorado Regiment, which was the, the if you like, the elite regiment of the, of the Bolivian army, right. um, would fight. And they would quite often, the, the casualty ratios were horrendous. So they would stand and fight quite often. The cavalry on the other, the Allied cavalry on the other hand, would just run away at the first whiff of danger. But the and the Peruvians were to a lesser extent. But it, it's just it's like any army, isn't it? It's the it's an army is only as good as its officers. They could fight if properly led, but they didn't tend to be properly led. Right. Um, the Chileans were actually vicious. They were absolutely lethal in a charge. That's all they wanted to do. Is if, and this this is a historic thing because they did the same in the. Liberation Wars back in the 18, you know, 1817. They wanted to get stuck in. Um, they all carried a knife, rather large knife, in their boot, which they um, were quite willing to use. I mean, they were quite happy to burn towns down, loot. They, they would just go into a ramp, loot rampage. So then I said, well, yeah, but they were no different to the British in the Peninsula War. We did right. exactly yeah. the same things. And I'm sure most armies do at some point. But so they were extremely keen to get in. The officer had that little extra bit of training and knowledge, which they used to good effect because in 1879, all three armies were still basically using Napoleonic tactics and using their um, drill books. And then one of the one of the uh, Chilean officers um, read a book about skirmishing, proper skirmishing, whereas up to that point, they just had a very formal skirmishing system using one company from each battalion. And he read this book and thought, whoa, this is the way to go. And it's basically French, you know, the French swarming style of skirmishing. But because he right. read it in the English book, it was called English, <laughs> like infantry tactics. One of the things I was curious about was how, how that battle would take place. How Where would be the ebb and flow? Everybody's in lines or are they running more static? Are you saying that the by the time we get to 1883, the the actual the engagement thought process has changed? Not particularly, no. They still okay. they started with I mean it's basically this this war is the Franco-Prussian war, but with no train timetables because they didn't have the industrial development, but it, it was using all the technology and the knowledge, but on a fairly small scale. Chileans were tended to be the attackers because they were the aggressors in the war, but not always. The Allies, where possible, tried to put in fortifications, but they didn't. A lot of the, like some of the battles were encounter battles, um, so they didn't really have a chance to put in decent fortifications. The only ones which had really decent fortifications were the battles outside Lima, um, where they did actually build redoubts and trench lines and things like that. Um, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of fortification as there could have been. And so the Chileans would generally want to get stuck in. The Peru, on several occasions, the Allies actually occupied very, very difficult, uh, steep positions. But unfortunately for the Chileans, the commander-in-chief of the Chilean army didn't like outflanking manoeuvres. So he was very much head-on charges sort of thing, but a bit of subtlety. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't all, to be frank, it, fair, it wasn't always possible to do it because of the logistics problems. The road, there were no road systems, right? Very little. Um, it, the desert as well made it very difficult to outflank. But he could have done some outflanking. Uh, sure. Um, so his his main aim was to sort of like just break the line, start off with an artillery barrage because the Chileans had superior artillery, 
because um, they had all the Krupp guns, whereas mm-hmm. the um, Peruvians and Bolivians had very little. Um, again, going back to money. So Bolivia and Peru, they would have just regular smoothbore Middle Ages cannon? Funnily enough, in the guerrilla war in the mountains, apparently, they did turn up with an old Spanish brass gun on a litter, which they had to carry into battle. But as a general rule, and particularly towards the end, the Bolivians and the Peruvians did start to pick up prop guns themselves. Mm-hmm. And the Peruvians, to their credit, actually built or made a lot of rifled field pieces, not as good as the crop ones because they were locally produced. Right. So usually um, by British, I think they're mainly British engineers that had engineering firms. There's a lot of engineering firms all over the place in South America that were run by British. And they would, they did their own, made their own guns. So they weren't as good and they managed to lose them all in the fall of Lima anyway. So they just had bits and pieces of guns like that, but they didn't have as much as the Peruvian, as the Chileans did. Now, we also get into another aspect of this war, and this is the fighting in the mountains. Mm. So there's fighting in the mountains. This is a very guerrilla type tactics. Yeah. So the Chileans decided, okay, we're gonna we're going right up that mountain coming after you. What they what they and the initial plan was just to sit in Lima and a few of the other major towns along the coast and sit this out and send in um expeditions to sort of like loot in different areas. They actually got up into the silver, proving silver mining areas and looted. And they used to like, drop off a force from the Navy and it would, uh, would drop off an army force. And that force would then move in and threaten the local landowners with either you pay us ridiculous sums of money or we're going to burn your whole landowning area to the ground. But the landowners were then in the position was either they paid up all this money to stop the land being destroyed or they then got the Peruvian government down on them like a ton of bricks because they'd given money away and they, they in theory, would have been punished for doing that. <laughs> and there was a lot of looting of like from the art galleries and the museums and the churches in Lima uh, by the Chileans. I'd like to break this down a little bit for the audience. I mean, there's, you know, what I'm hearing is there's great skirmish games that you can you could play just with what we've covered here today. Well, you can. Um, I mean, the the Chileans were we had to go into the into the mountains because that was where the the Peruvians maintained their base. And there was one man in particular, and Andres Caceres, who was a, a general um, in the earlier battle or colonel in the earlier battles. Um, he ended up leading the fighting in the in the mountains. He was very good at it, and he would he would sort of like just totally outmaneuver the Chileans. And he would then try and cut off small forces. And there was one battle, or one fight, wasn't really a battle, a celebrated engagement at Concepcion, where a company of Chilean soldiers was surrounded by several hundred guerrillas. And they had they fought in the town almost to the last man. It was one of these things where, oh, they all died, but I, I believe that some of them were captured and shot afterwards. Mm. But it was it was a it was a last stand of sort of epic proportions for the Chileans. Um and you had several like that. Um you also had some fairly small, sort of interesting battles. So the first battle of Pucava was an attempt by the Peruvians to hold off the Chilean pursuers in order to get away, which they actually succeeded in doing. So there were there were sort of like little battles like that, which just involved sort of hundreds of men. And then the, the perhaps that I always think the most war gameable battle of the lot 
is um, the final major battle of the campaign, uh, Hunachujo, which was fought up in northern Peru. It, it was the end of an absolutely epic pursuit by the Chileans of the Peruvians who were sort of racing through the mountains, being pursued by the Chileans, just keeping ahead of them. And eventually they bumped into another force in the north because the, Peru, the Chileans had forces all over the place. And um, it was only 1,600 men per side, but it was a set-piece battle with the Peruvians attacking for a change. They didn't generally do that, but they attacked the, um, the Chileans to try and break through, get into the north, so they could then attack people or not, so they could then attack for some Peruvians in the north. Because uh, the problem that the, a lot of the problem that the um, Peruvians had at this point was there were a lot of Peruvians which fed up with the war and wanted to make peace. Right. And so Caceres had to keep eating up his own his own side in order to make sure they stayed loyal. And he was he was on his way to do this when they when he got caught basically. But it, it's it's a quite an interesting battle. It's purely there's very little cavalry in these battles, like you would expect in Franco-Prussian war, whatever. Um, I have to say that kind of surprises me actually, because it seems like the horse, I'll say this, especially in Argentina, is such a big deal. You've got to bear in mind the terrain did not suit cavalry at all. Chile mm. okay. is, is like basically a foothill of the Andes. Um, so there's not any sort of massive wide sweeping plains. There are sort of like very fertile valleys, but they're not that big. So okay. they tended, and also the question of expense as well, I think. That's true. You know, I, I didn't think about that. I was, I'm just thinking about how culturally uh, we pull from our closest neighbor. And for the Bolivians, it's even worse. <laughs> right, right. Alan, I appreciate your time today. I, I'll tell you this. The folks listening know this. I hate talking to people who have interesting stuff because it makes me want to game it. <laughs> and it makes me want to leave the, to- the, the subject matter I'm currently working on to uh, jump in. So, but I do appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having the chat with me. I've enjoyed it. And I've been speaking with Alan Curtis about his book from Atacama to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883 from Hellion and Company Publishers. You can pick this up uh, on the Hellion website, also on Amazon, Blackwell's. Uh, You know, I I have to tell you, when I looked up to see where we pick it up, you could also pick it up at Walmart on the Walmart uh, website. So, Wherever you find your excellent books, this is, uh, this is one to pick up for sure. And you've been listening in Athens, Greece, Monterey, California, and Copenhagen, Denmark. This has been a special bonus episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast. I am the Baronet Scott of the County of Florida Shire. I'm out. <laughs>